You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, if you have your copy of God's Word, you can open to Psalm 51. And we want to finish what we started last week. I'll tell you a little bit about the, the direction we went last week as, as we uh, went through it. We looked at four things that David asked for. And this psalm was written by David after he had committed gross sin. He had um, committed adultery and had a man murdered and basically had kind of thought he'd gotten away with it possibly for over a year until God confronted him and he, he was convicted. And then he wrote this psalm. And I love it because it's one of our most extensive psalms of confession or just passages of scripture that gives us some guidelines on so what do you do when you sin, but then what does it mean to repent? And so the four parts of the psalm, which we'll cover the last two today, were confession, petition, adoration, and then resolution. The confession part is Yes, I've sinned and I know it and I'm admitting it, but the petition is saying, Lord, here's what I need you to do in my heart. Like, I want there to be a change. And what we saw was, when you repent, do you want pardon or do you want purity? Do you want a clean record or a cleansed heart? Do you really want to change? Is there going to be a difference? And it's not just feeling bad. And that's the biggest thing that when it comes to repentance, the, the feeling bad part is one thing, but then what you do with that, how things are different, that's where we begin to look at repentance. And so I want us to see these things. So we saw last week repentance is not the same as feeling guilty or saying you're sorry or even receiving forgiveness. It's definitely not seen in this trite admission of guilt that you can just take advantage of every time. This is why Paul warns in Romans 2.4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So we we, we don't want to presume that, okay, I know I'll be forgiven. We want to move on from there. So let's read Psalm 51 its entirety, and I'll I'll tell you how far we got last week, and then we'll finish it up um, today. Look in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your Abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, or take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Quick recap on that part. David recognized 
My sin is against God alone. Yes, there was other people involved, but ultimately I've got to see my sin as against God and that he's the one that I need to make amends with first. The second thing I wanted you to, to notice or remember is that what David asked for in his petition is, I want my joy back. And you wonder, why doesn't David ask for sexual restraint or accountability with his eyes? It's because he knew that his sexual sin was a symptom of something else, that the joy of the Lord is the only thing that's going to help him really be satisfied. That if you want to fight against your sin, you've got to make sure that you're finding your satisfaction and your fulfillment in Christ alone, or else it's going to be temporary. So David, yeah, he wants the sin to not happen again, but he said, ultimately, man, I need a a different heart. I need a heart filled with joy in your salvation. Then he moves on to these last two parts, adoration and resolution. Verse 13, then, once the restoration has happened, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Last week, my wife, we were having a little party for my nephew, and she made peanut butter pie, which is my favorite pie. Every year for my birthday, she makes a whole pie just for me to eat, and she makes one for the family to share. I I eat the whole thing. It's great. Like, maybe almost in a day. But the reason it's a treat is because I try to not eat so many sweets. I know how much of a sweet tooth I have. And so last weekend was not my birthday, but we had peanut butter pie in the fridge. And I really was trying to fight against it. I told my nanny, I told some of my kids, like, don't let me. Well, I was in the kitchen and no one was around. And I opened the fridge and screaming at me was two whole peanut butter pies that we had left over. And I confess, I ate one piece, a slice, and it was so good. I went back and I ate a second one. It was so good. Immediately afterwards, I was like, man, I shouldn't have done that. I felt sorry. I regretted it. Um, I'm like, I got to stop. I need to not because I I really could eat both of those right now. But here's the deal. I want to make sure that you understand this. When we talk about repentance, at that moment, I didn't want to do it again. I felt an emotion. I felt sorry. Uh, I didn't just feel full and like, oh, I was like, man, I, I regret that. But the test of my repentance is what I'm going to do the next time I open the fridge and there's still peanut butter pie in there because it's still in there. That's repentance, doing something different when given the opportunity again. And you guys, the reason this is important is because my emotions are very real at the moment. I really do feel sorry when I sin. But they're not going to sustain me in battling the sin the next time. Like they might hold it off for a little while longer, for an hour, a day, or a week, or a month even. But ultimately, if I don't get to the root of this, I'm, I'm just going to forget how I felt. I'm going to return and do the same thing. And so repentance is not just feeling bad. I want you to listen to how Paul explains repentance in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 11. He says, 
he's writing to the Corinthians and he was feeling a little, he's like, I said some strong things to you in my last letter. And he's, he's talking about his letter that he wrote before. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. The emotion then moved you into repentance. It's not the same, grief and repentance. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, hatred of the sin, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. So he's saying there's worldly grief, just feeling bad, and then there's godly grief. Worldly grief is feeling sorry for something because maybe it backfired on you or led to humiliation or punishment. It's the reflex of a, of a proud or fearful ego, and pride will always regret making a fool of itself. Fear will always regret acts that risk comfort and safety. So feeling sorry for what we've done isn't repentance. Godly regret is the response of a conscience that has wounded God's reputation, not its own. God's name has come into disrepute. The focus of godly grief is God. Of course, if there's other people that have been hurt by your sin, you need to make it right with them. That's what godly regret will do as well. But the greatest test of godly regret is what we read. Godly grief produces repentance. It produces change. And you see that in verse 11, all those emotions that also led to this desire to do something different. It's turning from one way, going the other, 180 degrees. Once when I was a youth pastor, I was teaching on repentance, and I said, you got to do a 360. And my student was like, uh, that's going the same way. I was like, oh, sorry, 180, you got to go the other way. That's what repentance means. I want to point out, though, in verse 8, notice, notice something about this. Paul says, I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. And here's why that's important. If the feeling of regret or guilt holds you in its grip, Week after week, long after the sin is passed and you've turned from it, it is not God's guilt on you anymore. It's false guilt. It's self-condemnation or Satan's condemnation. If Satan can't keep you from grieving over your sin, he'll do his best to keep you from enjoying your forgiveness. He'll turn your godly grief into an ongoing bondage of false guilt. So that's why Paul says, for a little while, it grieved you, but then it produced a change. In the end, godly grief brings us to the foot of the cross where the gospel offers pardon and hope. And I talked about the gospel last week. And you guys, I got to hit this again because this is crucial. You must understand what the Bible calls justification. I said last week, you can remember it by the phrase, it's justified, never sinned. What God does is he counts Jesus' sinless life as if it were your own. It's called imputed righteousness. His perfect performance counts as yours. And then God counts Jesus' sin-bearing death as your death, as your punishment. The Bible calls that propitiation. It satisfies God's wrath for your sin. Your sin is fully paid. So God remains just because sin is punished, but he can also declare sinners not guilty. So the trial is over. The only person whose opinion matters has declared you not guilty. Court adjourned, like we're done. My son went to trial for you. 
The reason that's crucial for you to get is because works-based religion, not the gospel, not Christianity, works-based religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. That's not the gospel. The gospel says, because of Christ, I am fully accepted, therefore I obey. My position is firm in Christ. It has nothing to do with my performance. It's a motive of love now. That's what motivates me to act. I don't act to become. I am the righteousness of Christ. So the gospel removes this shame because Jesus took all my condemnation. But the gospel also humbles you out of being pride because you know you're still in need of grace. You're fully accepted by God because of Christ's righteousness, not because you're moral. And this is why Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short. It's an ongoing, continual falling short of God's glory. Like, that's a tough challenge. And there's this wrong idea about Christianity that um, it's all about becoming a good person. This is why people say Christians are hypocrites when you sin. And I want to clear that up for a minute. This fundamental misunderstanding, it's... um, going to always lead to people being disillusioned or cynical about Christians because no one is sinless. You do not have to wait around very long to see that. You're going to be let down if you think being a Christian means that no one sins. We openly recognize our sinfulness. Hypocrisy is when I act like I don't have sin, but I, I do sin. That's hypocrisy. We're Christians because we know we sin. My sin doesn't contradict Christianity, it confirms it. I need a savior. It's only more proof that we need Jesus to take our sin and give us his righteousness. Christianity is about Jesus' work for us, not about our work to become good enough. In Ephesians 1, it talks about that God saved us to the praise of the glory of his grace, not to the praise of my righteousness. So, I'm reminded that I need a savior when I sin. The reason I hit this so hard, you guys, and and want to make sure that you get this is because as we now move into talking about repentance, if you don't get that gospel part, what's going to happen is you're going to think that uh, repentance, the purpose of repentance is to pay God back so I don't feel guilty anymore. The World War II movie Saving Private Ryan is about this group of U.S. soldiers that go behind enemy lines to retrieve a paratrooper whose brothers have been killed in action. In the final minutes of the movie, a dying Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, says to Private Ryan two words. He says, earn this. Earn this. What's he talking about? All the men who have died to save you, my death, earn this. The camera then cuts to an elderly James Ryan standing over Miller's grave years later. Tears in his eyes, Ryan speaks to Miller saying, every day I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best that I could. I hope that that was enough. I hope at least in your eyes I earned what you have done for me. Then turning to his wife, he says, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. You guys see the weight of that guilt that he felt? that I've got to somehow earn and pay back all that was done for me? You can't live like that. You're always going to be asking, was it enough? Did I do enough today? You're back in the courtroom waiting for this verdict today. 
That's not the gospel, my friends. That's too much guilt to live under. And it's not biblical repentance, really for three reasons. One, you could never pay God back. The infinite creator becoming a man and dying in my place, a wretched sinner, I, there, I could never repay that. The second thing is, grace is when you receive what you don't deserve. It's a gift, it's free, you don't pay for it. You're not trying to earn it. But finally, you guys, your good deeds don't pay back God's grace. You know why? You have to borrow more of God's grace to do good deeds. They don't pay God back, they, they borrow more grace. So I could never even do that anyway. So don't dare think, watch me prove that I'm sorry because I don't have it in myself anyhow. So if repentance isn't paying God back, what's my motivation for obedience? Yesterday my six-year-old son got in trouble. I was talking to him and I said, um, so why was, why was that wrong? Why do you not want to do that? And he said, because I'll get in trouble. I said, no, that's not why we don't do these things, just to avoid the consequences. I don't want you to be sorry because you got in trouble. I want you to understand what you did. So what we're going to read now is David's response to being restored. If my motivation for, for living the Christian life is not to obey God out of pride or fear, then, then what is it? I think what it is, I obey for the sake of the Savior for whose relationship I treasure. That's the motive that I need to have. That comes from the heart. So look at David's response. What does a repentant heart look like? He starts with this word, then. So he's changing now that this has happened. I've confessed. I've asked God for this. I've received forgiveness. Then, now something's going to change. It's actually sandwiched. There's a then at the beginning and a then at the end. That now something's going to be different. There's four responses I want you to look at. David doesn't want to waste his failure. I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to grow from this. I want other people to learn from this. So look with me in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. What we learn first here, you guys, is that when my heart is right, my mouth can't be quiet. Jesus said out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When my heart is right, I want people to know. I'm excited about it. Social media teaches us this, right? We want people to enjoy the same thing we enjoyed. We want them to share in what we've enjoyed. So we, we tell them, look at this, I wanna share it with you. I was at the gym two days ago, and I met a guy first time, I'd seen him before, but we first conversation we'd ever had, and within about two sentences of our conversation, this 68-year-old man is telling me about his brain hemorrhage that he survived. He was in ICU for 60 days, had to learn how to walk again, and like it was, all of a sudden, he's wanted to tell me about this. And it was his birthday. He was excited. Why was he so unashamed? Because he was excited. When you're glad just to be alive, when you realize I should have been dead, you just want to talk about it. When I realize truly what God has done to pardon me, I want others to know. It's like Jesus saying to the man who'd been healed of this demon possession, who wanted to go with Jesus, Jesus says, nope, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he's had mercy on you. And the Bible says he did. He went back and he declared in the whole area and everybody was amazed. That's why David said, now I want others to know. I want them to not repeat my mistake. I want to teach them this is how you live for Jesus. Verse 14. First he says, I will teach transgressors your ways. Now he says, 
I will sing aloud of your righteousness. I need to remember that God alone is righteous and God alone is my righteousness. It's not my performance, right? I want to glorify his righteousness. The Bible says God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's my only plea before God, my only standing. Then verse 15, he says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Again, it's all God-focused. I've been pardoned. I want to tell people about God. I want to praise God. I want to worship God. But notice even there, he says, but God, open my mouth. Like, sometimes I don't feel like it. I need you to open my mouth sometimes. Give me the want to want to, because I'll wallow in my shame and guilt. If you look at the, the last verse, actually, of the previous psalm, it says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. So David talks about sacrifice. Look in verse 16. Before we get to our final response, he he points out what repentance isn't, what God doesn't want. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Now, the deal is, that's what the law says, that, that you should offer these sacrifices on, on the altar. But David knows something. He knew that the sacrifices are only supposed to be outward acts that are meant to reflect inward repentance and worship. So going through the motions means nothing without a heart change. You're still going to feel guilty. If you think, okay, I sinned, I feel really bad, I'll go to church. I'll, I'll tithe, I'll serve, I'll pray, I'll do these things. Those are nice things, those are good things, but if your heart isn't right, they mean nothing. That's why David said, that's actually not what you want. I know your law says that, but what you really want is my heart in this. And I've got to remember the sacrifice that really counts is Jesus. The Bible says he paid it once for all. All through the book of Hebrews, it talks about Jesus' sacrifice once for all time. It doesn't have to be repeated. That's the sacrifice that really counts. Now anything, anything else that I add, it's because it happened once for all and I get to do these things, not have to. So David's fourth response in verse 17, it really combines these last two parts of, of adoration, but also resolution. Something different is going to happen. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That word broken means to destroy, to crush, to maul, to break, or to shatter an object. He's saying, my heart has got to be shattered, Lord, this is what you really want, not these external sacrifices. You want a heart that is completely undone. Same thing with the word contrite. It means to crush, to press on someone or something, to, to destroy it. David knew, like, my heart has got to be completely reduced to the, the root cause of this so that I'm going to be different. That's what you really want. Living differently is the acceptable sacrifice. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 1, in view of God's mercies, now that God has shown you mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what God wants. That's a spiritual act of worship, being holy and acceptable because of how you live your life. John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, you're repentant. There needs to be something that's different. When your heart's right, your actions follow. Jesus said in John 15, that if you abide in me, then you'll produce much fruit and thus prove to be my disciple. 
So I want to offer proper, proper sacrifice. Verse 18 jumps to this thing about Zion and Jerusalem. It says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. It seems like this random jump, and it's made some scholars think like, well, maybe that was added in later. Here's why I don't think it was added in later. I think that David knew that as king, his sin affected those under him. Then I need to remember that my sin affects those around me. The consequences of my foolishness, of my selfishness, of my sin affects my wife. It affects my kids. It affects my coworkers. And so David was saying, Lord, I realize what I've done as king over this empire, over this nation, has consequences. And, and I'm praying for, for them as well. Like, I'm trying to get back on track, but man, I'm praying your blessing on them as well. I realize the weight of my sin affects other people. That's why Proverbs 13.20 says that a companion of fools suffers harm. There's just consequences. If I'm being the fool, my companions, my wife and kids, are going to suffer harm. That's why David mentions Zion and Jerusalem. Look in verse 19, though. This is the final resolution that I want us to remember. He says, Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be added, um, bulls will be offered on your altar. So why now does he go back to this? Why will God now delight in these outward rituals? Because now they come from a broken and contrite heart. Now when I do these things that I'm supposed to do, my motives are totally different. My heart is right. Now they actually mean something. Now they outwardly reflect this inward living sacrifice that David wants to be. And this is why we need to always examine our motives for doing the right thing and for serving the Lord. And this is also why on the surface it's hard to tell if someone really gets the gospel or if they're stuck in this works-based religion. If I think that, that my acceptance before God is in my performance, I do things, therefore I'll be accepted, then I'll serve in the nursery. I'll volunteer at church. I'll tithe. I'll do these things because I'm thinking if I, if I perform, then I'll be accepted by God. But listen to this. If I realize my righteousness, my standing is only because of Jesus and that my performance never changes that, then out of joy, out of love for my Savior, you know what I'll do? I might volunteer in the nursery. I might help out around church. I might tithe or serve or do things. And so on the surface, it's hard to tell the difference. That's why I always need to remember my motives. Why am I doing this? To pay God back? Or because of what's already happened, because I realize the depth of God's grace and mercy. It's not that I broke God's law, I broke God's heart. That's the attitude. That's why we repent. So I want to I end with giving you eight questions. If you want to write these down, you can, but I want to help us get in the habit of intentionally walking through our repentance. I mentioned last week, you don't want your repentance to be like you're driving through a toll booth tossing your change in as you go by. My father-in-law always said, you need to have a quick repentance rate, which means when you realize your sin, repent then. But I don't want to have a quick repentance. Does that make sense? I want to slow down long enough to go, okay, so why did I do this? What was I, what was I looking for other than Christ for my joy and satisfaction and fulfillment? Why was I totally oblivious to how I hurt people with that? Why am I... So what I want to do is give you some questions to ask 
so that you can be a sin murderer. We talked about this last week. In Romans 8, Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. How do you strangle your sin? God wants me to be sanctified, made holy. How can I work towards that? By his grace, by his power, but give me some guidelines here. So the following eight questions are intended to help you walk through and put to death a specific sin. And this is not meant to be this legalistic list. You should go down and check the box, but really examining your heart. First question, do I have confidence that I've been saved? Now, I want you to get this. If, you, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, sinning doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Satan loves to heap condemnation on us. If you're not a Christian, the biggest thing he wants you to think is that you are one. But if you are a Christian, then he wants you to think that you aren't one. So understand that it's because of the righteousness of, of Christ that you're accepted by God. But if you haven't truly made that decision, if you didn't get it, if you've been depending on your own works, you need to... Ask Jesus to rescue you. The Bible calls it being saved, being born again. That's where the Bible says God takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. He puts his spirit in you to move you to keep his commands. So if I'm never moved to keep God's commands, there should be a little red flag there. If I'm never convicted, saving faith cherishes being forgiven by God as unspeakably glorious and from there rises to cherishing the God who forgives and all that he has for us, all that he is for us in Jesus. But if I don't get that when I feel sorry, I'm not going to repent because I just think, well, I feel sorry, for, I feel bad for my sins. I know I'm a sinner. Thomas Watson said, knowledge without repentance is merely a torch by which to light men's way to hell. So it's not, do you feel sorry? It's, have you trusted in Jesus' righteousness alone to save you? Second question, do I meditate on Scripture? Do I pray? One of the ways that God sanctifies us, makes us holy, is through his word. John 17, 17, Jesus said, Lord, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Romans 7, 7, it says, through God's law comes knowledge of sin. So reading God's word is helpful it, it feeds faith's appetite for God and it can break this deceptive power of sin as I'm reading God's word. It'll remind me of what really matters. And godly regret that we talked about is often the result of God's word putting its finger on specific sin in our lives. While worldly regret is all about, well, what do people think? It's man's word, not God's word that's convicting me. It's my gauge of guilt. And so I need to read God's word, search out in scripture for the glory of God Humble myself before him. I tell my kids all the time, you can't be close to God and far from his word. You can't think high thoughts of God and not be humbled about your sin. And you need to think about this. What does it say if you avoid God's word? If you avoid being in the car or in the house with total silence? If you avoid people who might speak truth into your life? What is that telling you? I think people rarely reject the Bible because they can't understand it. I think they understand it all too well, that it condemns their behavior. It witnesses against their sins. It calls them to judgment. People rarely reject the Bible and start sinning. Many, many times they start sinning and then reject the Bible. And in your prayer life, I heard a great quote last year. A secret life of prayer will keep you from a secret life of sin. Here's what he meant by that. 
Not that, oh, I just pray and I won't sin. No, a life of prayer between you and the Lord that's vibrant can't also have undealt with sin. It just can't exist together. The sin is gonna choke this prayer or prayer is gonna strangle sin, but you can't have both these vibrant things. So oftentimes the presence of a secret life of sin means there's been an absence of a secret life of prayer. So do you read your Bible? Do you pray? Third question, have I identified the sin I wanna put to death? Do I just kinda feel like, ah, I just need to be be a better person? That's not specific repentance. I need to ask how deeply rooted is my sin. In order to defeat sin, I gotta understand who my enemy is. The, the, the lusts of my flesh and the lure of the world, the lies of the devil, that's what I'm fighting against. So what exactly am I doing that's in rebellion against God? Another psalm that David wrote, Psalm 139, he says, search me, O God, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Show me my blind spots. Where am I missing it here? Job prayed in Job 13, 23, make me know my rebellion and my sin. So asking myself, honestly, how deep is this? Am I more consistently giving into this sin than doing what is right? It helps me know how tight of a hold it has on me. Next question, do I see my sin as a willful act of rebellion against God? Willful act, not the devil made me do it, I stumbled into sin, I fell into sin. That sounds like it's not really my fault. Do I see my sin as a willful act of rebellion? We don't like to call ourselves rebels, but a lot of times I'm just numb to the, the seriousness of my sin because I actually love it. This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3:19. He goes, here's the verdict. Lights come into the world, but men love darkness. They don't want their sin to come into the light because it's gonna expose it. We love our sin. I need to be heartbroken that the relationship between God and I has been severed. Stop minimizing, excusing my sin. I need to be grieved that God has been offended. That's what David said earlier. That's what Joseph, when he was tempted, said. How can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? It's, it's my Savior. I've, I've violated his commandments and broken his heart. Next question, do I have godly sorrow? Remember we talked about worldly regret, worldly grief versus godly sorrow. Do I desperately want to stop sinning? Have I felt the weight of my sin against God? I need to consider the possibility I'm only concerned about my sin because of the shame it causes me and the consequences that come from my actions, and that's worldly regret. Do I desire God to be glorified in me? I need to long for it, pant for it, desire it. What, what is it that I'm putting in the place of God that I want to glorify instead? I gotta find out. What, what is it that I'm letting steal God's glory? Proverbs 8.13 says, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. Let me pause and address something. What if you don't feel sorry? What if you know it's wrong, but you don't feel sorry? There's no regret. You're unrepentant. Well, I'm going to warn you that's a very scary place to be. There's a lot of danger that you're in because sin first deceives us, then it defiles us, but eventually it deafens us. Paul talked about people whose conscience has been seared, meaning their, their past feeling. Their conscience is rendered insensitive. It doesn't work proper, properly. Spiritual scar tissue has built up around their heart and dulled their sense of right and wrong. That's a scary place to be if you feel no regret. 
You might also be thinking, well, I'll repent later. That's a good plan, right? J.C. Ryle warns in this manner, you do not know what you're doing. You're planning without God. Repentance and faith are the gifts of God, and they are gifts that he often withholds when they've been long offered in vain. I grant you true repentance is never too late, but I warn you at the same time, late repentance is seldom true. I grant you one penitent thief was converted in his last hours that no man might despair, but I warn you only one was converted that no man might presume. So we already mentioned God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but it's also the same God that disciplines his children. So I need to ask that God would grant me repentance. That's what actually Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.25. He says, maybe God will grant them repentance. I need that from God. Lamentations 5.21 prays, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Please, you restore me. I need that. So be concerned if you don't feel this sorrow. Three more questions. Do I know the occasions and situations when I am most tempted by this sin? To use my analogy, if I know that going into the kitchen alone, opening the refrigerator, I will probably eat peanut butter pie, I need to avoid that situation. Asking yourself, when and where am I vulnerable to the lusts of my flesh, the lure of the world, the lies of the devil? Can I identify patterns that lead me to this sin, behaviors, moods, places, people that lead me to sin. If every time I'm alone on the, the computer I do this, I need to not be alone on the computer. If every time you're around this group of people, you give in to peer pressure, reconsider being around that group of people. If every time you allow this person to get under your skin, there's, there's a deeper thing going on here, and I gotta recognize what's at the heart of this. When am I sinning? You are not gonna get anywhere if I don't sit down and go, okay, when am I more, and there's actually probably a pattern you might not have ever thought of before. It's when I'm tired or late at night or alone or hangry. My wife likes to always ask, are you hungry? If I'm kind of grumpy. Like what are the occasions that I usually give in to sin? This is why Romans 13, 14 commands us, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Don't give yourself the opportunity. Next, do I battle my sin immediately? When you do feel that the very second that I sense I'm being tempted, I've got to enter into battle mode. I've got to realize, okay, war is here. I'm fighting right now. I can't allow myself to toy with this, revel in it, not even a little. And this is why also we seek accountability so others can pray for me and with me and ask me how I'm doing in this fight. In James it says, hey, confess your sins to each other that you can be healed. Confessing my sins to God, I'm going to be pardoned, but there's something also about confessing my sins to others that can lead to more healing because I'm being real. This, this Christian life is not meant to be lived alone, you guys. You're not supposed to be battling this all on your own. Finally, do I expect God to give me victory? Do I expect it? God has promised victory over sin. He's provided every necessary resource to win the fight. I need to trust that God will faithfully provide a way of escape. He promises that. Do I believe it? Do I look for it? But I want you to think of this real quick. Why would God give us all of these commandments in the Bible and then say, apart from me, you can do nothing? Why would he do that? Dependence. Dependence. God doesn't want your performance. He wants your dependence. It's not like you've got to go earn it on your own. You've got to battle on your own. He's saying, no, 
John 15, abide in me, stay, remain, keep plugged into me, then you'll produce fruit. Then the fruit of the spirit that you need, self-control, patience, kindness, that comes from abiding in me. It's the fruit of the spirit, not your fruit. So yeah, this is how living the Christian life is supposed to look, but you can't do it on your own. Dependence is what you need. Paul explained the secret of living the Christian life in Galatians 2.20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's Christ living in me. He's saying there's only one person that can live the Christian life, that can love my wife and be patient with my kids and forgive people and fight sin, and it's not Paul. There's only one person that can live the Christian life, and it's not Chris Jared. Paul says, here's the deal. The life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the secret. That's the victory. Final part of this process is identify another sin and repeat. As you work through sin in your life, be specific. Go through these steps of repentance. And then when you see another one, okay, great. Let me go through these things again. But you guys, I mentioned this before. Confession is not punishment. It's a gift because there's assurance of forgiveness. So when I do this, I don't need to wallow in guilt. Now, I do need to ask, why wouldn't you want to re go through this? Why wouldn't you want to take the time to go through these questions? Only if you aren't serious about your sin to actually repent. There's this unique example in John 5 where there's this invalid guy. He can't walk, and Jesus comes up to him, and he says, do you want to be healed? That almost sounds like insulting, right? He's laying there, he's like, yeah, I want to be healed. Why would Jesus ask that? But here's the question for you. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to conquer this? Are you going to say, God, I give you permission to search out every closet in my heart? I don't just want pardon. I want purity. I want cleansing. Are you willing to do whatever it takes this is why David cries out, God, give me a willing spirit. Give me this broken, crushed, shattered heart that just wants what you want. That is the only way I'm going to be able to deal with this. Hating my sin, but then relying on your grace, depending on you, not my own performance. Confession, petition, adoration, resolution. How fast is your repentance? I want to again warn us that we are so prone to depend on our own moral willpower for fighting sin, growing spiritually, living the Christian life. We don't have it on our own. This is why my wife loves to pray for my children, Jeremiah 24-7. And it's 24-7 that we need this. God says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. It's God who does this. It's God who gives you the truth to live by and the grace to cover your sin and empower you to obey. Jesus gives some great words in Revelation 2. He's talking to the church in Ephesus and he says, here's the deal. You have forsaken your first love. I was your first love and I'm not anymore. Here's what I want you to do. Here's your remedy. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. You're going back and you're doing what you used to do. 
And there's an important strategy here that, that he gives us, very practical for fighting sin and moving on in our growth. If you want what you once had, you must do what you once did. If you want what you once had, you must do what you once did. That's why he says, go back and do what you did at first. This is true for our marriages, by the way, and other things. But also, I would say, if you want what you've never had, you must do what you've never done. You can't just keep doing the same thing and expect different results. Repentance means there's going to be a difference in your life. So I want to end by giving you time. I'm going to close this in prayer in a minute, but I want you to talk to the Lord. That I want you to not leave here not doing business, whether it's I just need to praise the Lord for his forgiveness. Or maybe some resolutions need to happen. Lord, by your grace and power, here's the sin that I want to strangle. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for being all that I, I need. Help me to remember that when I'm tempted. Whatever you need to do, I'm going to give you a few minutes. Talk to the Lord, and then I'll close this in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we truly stand amazed at the sacrifice, the cost that you offered so that we could be restored to you, so that we could be adopted by you. God, we confess that we know our hearts. They are prone to wander. But God, thank you for your mercy and grace over and over again. And God, I pray that we truly would repent, that we would not take advantage of your forgiveness time and again, that God, we would hate our sin that you would be all that satisfies us, that we'd fight against these false joys, these false hopes, these lies that we believe are gonna fulfill us, and God, that we would turn to you. Help us to enter into battle mode when we're tempted. Remember what we need to do by your grace because we're accepted by you, the things that we are now empowered to do, Lord. And I pray for anyone here who hasn't trusted you to be their savior for the first time, they would, they would cry out to you. God, I pray that we would learn from David what it looks like to truly be repentant and then, Lord, uh, that we would model a heart that's been restored and we can only do this by your power in the name of your Son and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.